brothers and sisters. We hope this morning is not a mental exercise. But God will turn it into a spiritual exercise. By the grace of God, we hope that these intellectual questions will become our spiritual experience. Christ is the answer. And we come into a more intimate, living, real fellowship with him. And that is the purpose of this I was given three questions. Two are related to our theme, but one is a general one. And I'll try to answer them by the grace of God briefly. Please classify the distinction between a slave, son, and steward. We are not referring to three different class of people. When we are talking about slave or bondman, son, and stewards, we are talking about the one and same person. It is just a description of our different aspects of our relationship with our Lord. Our Lord gave himself for us. He bought us with a price. Salvation is more than just get saved. Out of hell into heaven. Salvation is such that we are saved to be no longer ours but his. We are all bought with a price. We are all Slaves, as it were, in a good sense, bondmen of Christ Jesus. We have no liberty of ourselves, no right to our lives. We are His. And our whole life is supposed to be the life of a born slave. We love him. We love his household. We will not go out free, but we want to be with him and serve him with all our hearts. That's our relationship with him so far as redemption is concerned. 
Thank God we are not only slaves, but we are sons. Because by the grace of God, we are born from above. We have his very life in us. And this life is supposed to grow from children into sons. He that is led by the Spirit of God is the Son of God. So in our lives, we need to be led by the Spirit of God. Now, if we are not led by the Spirit of God in our daily lives, we remain babes in Christ. And as babes in Christ, we can never be a steward to the mysteries of mysteries of God. So thank God, this life grows within us and grows from childhood into manhood. And as sons, that means the life that God has given to us is matured. So that speaks of our life relationship with the Lord. And as our life is matured, or is maturing, then in the measure of the maturing of his life in us comes the measure of our responsibility, our stewardship. And that is when we are able to fulfill our responsibility as stewards of the grace of God as well as the mysteries of God. So brothers and sisters, here you find these three are closely related. They can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated. And you are not just a bond slave, not just a son, but also a steward. That's what we all are. Thank God for that. The next one is, how does this relate to eternal security? And the following is not too clear to me as if these uh, are they different, separate issues. Please provide scriptures. I think a number of people really are concerned with this matter of eternal security. We want to be secured, not only for this life, but also for eternity. We are clever. <laughs> Thank God, eternal security is something that God has promised us. Eternal security is not in us. If it is in us, it will never be secure. 
But thank God, eternal security is God's eternal purpose for us. You remember Romans chapter six, chapter eight, verses twenty-nine. Because whom he has foreknown, he has also predestinated. To be conformed to the image of his son, so that he should be the firstborn from among many brethren. But whom he has predestinated, these also he has called. And whom he has called, these also he has justified. But whom he has justified, these also he has glorified. And then you find in Romans chapter eleven, verse twenty-nine. Chapter eleven, verse twenty-nine. For the gifts and the calling of God are not subject to repentance. Our eternal security is rooted in the eternal purpose of God. Now, can you have anything more secure than that? It is God's good pleasure. It is what He foreknown of us. According to his foreknowledge, he has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his beloved Son. And whom he has called, he has justified. And whom he has justified, he has glorified. It is his gift, and it is his calling. And his gift and calling has no repentance. He is not a baby, a child. When he is friendly with his friends, he share or even give his toys to his friend. When he is unfriendly, he wants everything back. This is not our God. Once a gift he gives, it is forever. Once he has called us, he will keep us. So thank God, eternal security is in God, not in you, not in me. And furthermore, eternal security is the grace. Again, you find in Romans chapter eleven, verse twenty-nine, for the gifts and the calling of God are not subject to repentance. And in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith, 
and this not of yourselves, it is God's gift. And we have already mentioned that it, if it is the grace of God, it does not depend upon our behavior. If we behave well, he saves us. If we do not behave, he take away that salvation. Now that's man, that's not God. So we are secured in the grace of God. And finally, we are secured in God's almighty power. John, John chapter 10. Verse 28 and 29. And I gave them life eternal, and they shall never perish, and no one shall seize them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can seize out of the hand of my Father. Now, with God the Son and God the Father holding our both hands, we are secured. So, dear brothers and sisters, thank God for eternal security. And you have this matter on the uh, inheritance. Now, inheritance is one of the biggest subjects in the Bible. We can spend a whole week on this matter of inheritance. So we are not able to deal with this this morning. Just let me quote one scripture, and that is Acts. Acts chapter 6, the 26. Acts chapter 26, verse 18. I think we are all familiar with this verse because God, our Lord Jesus, appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and there we find his commission to Saul. Verse 18. I send thee to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, and from power, the power of Satan to God, that ye may receive remission of sins and inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith in me. So here we find we not only receive remittance of sin, we have our sins forgiven. Thank God for that. So far as we, the persons, are concerned, we are redeemed. But also, you'll find we are given the inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith. We are like Ruth. 
our kinsman redeemer comes, not only rescue, redeem our inheritance, but even redeem our fallen man. So thank God for that. This matter of inheritance is wonderful. If I may just, just mention another scripture, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14. In whom ye also have trusted, having heard the word of the truth, the glad tidings of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Why sealed? Who is the earnest of our inheritance to the redemption of the quiet possession to the praise of his glory. And another verse, verse 18. Being enlightened in the eyes of your heart so that he shall you should know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Christ is our inheritance. And our portion falls in the good ground. Wonderful. The marvel is we are the inheritance of Christ. Christ, our inheritance, is glory. How glorious he is. And we have him as our inheritance. In fullness. Think of that. We become his inheritance and also the glory of his inheritance. His glory has transformed us. So wonderful. Now this matter of stewardship and inheritance are closely related. If we are a faithful and prudent steward, we will inherit with our Lord Jesus during the coming kingdom, the millennium age, to reign and rule with Christ for a thousand years. If we are unfaithful and foolish, we think we have a good time in our lives. Refuse to be disciplined. Refuse to suffer for Christ's sake. Will we lose our inheritance? Yes and no. We will lose our inheritance in the age to come. 
that is the millennium age. Instead of coming into the banquet of the marriage feast of the Lamb, we are shut out in darkness, gnashing our teeth, regretting what we have done. Foolish. But thank God, this is not punishment. This is discipline. And discipline is unto maturity. So somehow, what God has predestined for us, in spite of us, grace will finish the work. And in eternity, we all the heavenly Jerusalem. Wonderful. So on the one hand, we need to be comforted. On the other hand, we need to be warned. For the sake of a few years, you can fulfill glory of a thousand years. Is it worth it? So these two things really are closely related and I think that should be quite enough. I'll go over the other very quickly. Sonship related to stewardship. Necessary one before the other. Sonship and stewardship actually are one. When you are placing a son, that means you are in stewardship. If we are faithful in that which is not ours, he will give us ours to if we are faithful in the little, he will give us much. So these two things are really very closely together. In the measure of sonship is the measure of stewardship. I think that should be enough. And the third one is a general one. How can I spend more time with God? I try to do it, but it always fails. How do you remember to spend time with God? Now, when you read this question, on the one hand, you think that this brother or sister wants to have some time with God. But towards the last, he said, how can you remember to spend time with God? Now, if something that you can forget so quickly, it means that you do not really want it very eagerly. So I think the whole question is deeper than that. It is not a matter of spending time with the Lord. It is a matter of your consecration. It is a matter of your priority. 
Have you really given yourself totally, without reserve, according to all that you know? You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Have you done that? Are you doing it? Now, if that is the case, then all your time is the Lord's. He is the priority. He has the first of your time. And if he is the first of your time, it's very easy to find time to be with him. So I think here is a deeper question. And may the Lord help us that we may be those who are totally on behalf of my other two brothers, I would like to thank those brothers and sisters who thought about and took the time to ask some questions. Some of you know that this is not my favorite time, because I have so many questions that I need answers to that uh, <clears throat> I would rather be on the asking end rather than on the answering end. I also <clears throat> have taken the questions that were given to me and put them uh, together in such a way that we just have three that we want to seek to uh, fellowship about. The first one is, how do you forgive unlovable, impossible people? How do you love them? Now, I feel like I have to take some responsibility for this question because many times I have made this statement about God putting impossible people in our lives. So how do we love them? How do we forgive them? Well, brothers and sisters, you know, our, our God has provided a, a completely adequate salvation. And that he wants to conform us to his own character. So maybe whoever wrote this question should ask another question before they ask this one. That is, how could God love me? And I think that this may be the, the real problem that needs to be, uh, got, we need to get some, some answer to, some que a question we need to get an answer to. I felt impressed this morning that, that in this matter of forgiving and loving one another, that when we point our finger at other people this way, you need to notice there are three of them pointing right back at you. And many times the, the difficulties that we're having
with other people are the same difficulties of people having with you. And many times the Lord uses these kinds of situations in his mercy to draw attention to some things in our lives that we are unwilling to face. So that's one thing I would say to us. The other thing is, the only way that I know that we can faithfully forgive and manifest this laying down of our lives love, this selfless, sacrificing concern and burden and love for other people, is that we have to find our source in some place else other than in ourselves. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So this resource of us being able to forgive and to love others has to be this resource that gets poured into us. You know, one evening as we shared, we shared about this water box that the people in Brazil have to supply the water for their, for their houses. Well, our hearts need to be that water box. And if we will allow the Holy Spirit to continue to do his work, he will keep the level of that love at such a measure that there will be abundant supply for everybody that the Lord brings into our lives. So the issue is whether we by faith are going to begin to put this into practice. Now, I don't think I have to mention this morning that there's many, many scriptures that we could turn to that uh, would address this matter of forgiving. You remember when our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 he teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins. How? As we forgive others. Now, I hope we see that, the, that many times the problem rests in us because we're not experiencing God's forgiveness. Not that it's not available, but the door has been locked by our, our unwillingness to forgive those who have sinned against us. Now, even among us as the Lord's people, wouldn't it be wonderful if we never sinned against one another? But I have to say to you, my dear brothers and sisters, this morning, the deepest hurt that I have ever experienced from another human being came from my brothers and sisters. Why? Because we open up our lives to one another and we make ourselves vulnerable. And sometimes... They take advantage of our being vulnerable, and we get deeply hurt. And so here, there's a, a, an opportunity for us to practice, to put in very practical ways this matter of loving others in the same way that he has loved us. So we can look at John 13, where our Lord Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. So if we somehow allow there to be a blockage where we don't extend forgiveness to our brothers and sisters and to even other people, 
maybe people who are not believers. My little bit of experience has taught me, my brothers and sisters, that many of God's dear people are imprisoned by an unwillingness to forgive, especially their mothers and their fathers. And even if they're not living, you need to forgive them. And it, you will discover a freedom of being set free that you didn't realize that you were imprisoned by. So there is grace. There is an abundant supply. And it's by faith. And maybe sometimes what can be helpful is in a very practical way. If there's somebody you have difficulty manifesting the Lord's love by forgiving them, maybe it'd be good for you to take a piece of paper, write their name at the top, and then begin to make a list of all the ways they've sinned against you. And then when you're finished, right over top of it, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive. And tear it up and throw it away. And I think this sends a signal that we're serious about this matter. But we need to maintain this forgiveness even after we've taken that first step. So... Please, my brothers and sisters, let's remember. Let's remi remember and remind each other that this is the one thing that characterizes us as being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we love one another. And one of the main ways we manifest this love is in our forgiving in the same way he forgives. And so, in essence, we can say Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, Nevertheless, I love, but not I. But Christ loves through me. I forgive, but I don't forgive. It's his forgiveness, his life enabling us to forgive. So let's all be encouraged. And the brother or sister who wrote the question, his grace is sufficient. Now the second one has to do with the matter of sin. And uh, this, there's actually two people who have written questions, and I'm trying to put them together. And the first one made reference to what our brother Kenny said yesterday morning at the Lord's table. He said, sin washed away by the blood and remembered no more. And they said, then Ernie said that Paul was forgiven and sins no more remembered. What about standing before the Lord judgment, every idle word, etc. So if my sins are forgotten and covered by the blood of Jesus, what will I stand in judgment for? And then the other one, is it possible to live a sin-free life while still physically alive? If the old self is dead, why then do we still sin? Well, brothers and sisters, my heart rejoices this morning when I, by the help of the Holy Spirit, come to some understanding about this so great salvation that God has provided for us when his son from the cross said, finished. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It is completed. Nothing else needs to be added to it. Everything that needs to be done Everything that you and I need to experience to become the people God desires for us to be, which are conformed to the image of his son. Everything.
has been richly and abundantly supplied through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to this matter of sin, it is true that when our Lord Jesus shed his blood on that cross, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he took this blood that he shed and took it into the very holy of holies of God and sprinkled it there on the mercy seat. And dear brothers and sisters, in order for God to forgive any of us, regardless of what kind of sin, there is only one way that a righteous God can righteously forgive us of our unrighteousness. He has to look at that blood. And when he does, he makes a decision to forgive, to forget, and to have them removed from us as far as the east is from. That is one wonderful aspect of this salvation. But brothers and sisters, the writer of Hebrews tells us it's a so great salvation. So I want us to think about, just for a moment, for me, my limited understanding is that it would be an inadequate salvation if God didn't provide a way for us to stop sinning. It's true that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin, but it is not God's heart that we as his children go on sinning. This is a problem that Paul is dealing with at the end of Romans 5 and on into Romans 6. You remember he said, where sin did abound? How did God respond? He, he, his grace super abounded. Now let me try to illustrate this. Uh, I don't want to get into preaching this morning. I want to try to keep it on the answer level. But in Brazil, there is a very, very famous river. Maybe you heard about it called the Amazon. It's the biggest river in the world. At some points, it's 13 miles across. And when it flows out into the ocean for 200 miles, fresh water. So you can get the idea. There's another river in the city where we used to live called the Paranaíba. It's a small river, especially by comparison. But a number of years ago, a company moved there and began to produce some products from tomatoes. And they put all their waste into the river, and they killed all the life that was in the river. Now, what would be your solution to uh, removing the pollution from that Paranaiba River? Well, this is what the Lord impressed my heart with. If somehow we could rechannel the Amazon, and we could make it run by Patos Geminis and into that Paranaiba River, what would happen to the Paranaiba? It would disappear. Well, this is my understanding of what our God did in reference to our sin. There's no question that sin is a very, very big issue. With a holy God, it has to be. He doesn't have an option. And so he found a way to cause his abounding grace to come and overwhelm and superabound and overcome sin. But don't forget now what Paul goes on to say in Romans 6. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? What's his response? Very strong. 
Matter of fact, it's not easy to translate it into the English without being profane. But he's, he's saying it as strongly as may it never be. Don't even let yourself think that way. How can you, who have died to sin, continue to live in sin? God has provided a way. So that we mentioned last evening, what kind of a sinner doesn't sin? A dead one. <laughs> but you can't crucify yourself. So God's salvation was to put you and me as sinners in Christ. He became sin for us. And he put us in him. And when he was crucified, we were crucified with him. So this is how we can not be victimized by sin. In 1 John, John talks about this. That which is born of God cannot sin. Now, brothers and sisters, this is important that we give some consideration to this because you, you know why our Lord Jesus did not sin. You know why? Because he didn't have a sinful nature. He has the very nature of God. And this life came and indwelt Jesus of Nazareth and enabled him to live an absolutely sinless life. Otherwise, there would be no atonement. But he lived an absolutely sinless life. So it's not just a negative side where the old man is crucified, but hallelujah, brothers and sisters, on the positive side, the same life that enabled our Lord Jesus to live a sinful life has now been placed in you and in me. We've been born of God. God has taken his own life, eternal life, resurrection life, overcoming sin life, and put it in us. And now we have the the opportunity and the responsibility to learn how to live in the reality of this. We mentioned this matter of being stewards, of being educated. Brothers and sisters, in regard to this matter of sin, we need to be educated. You remember what Paul, Roman, Paul says in Romans 6, knowing this, <laughs> but what if you don't know it? You haven't been educated about this. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with. I can tell you for myself, I went for 13 years totally ignorant. I worked hard to stop sinning. But then by God's mercy, he began to show me Romans 6 and show me that I also have a responsibility, as we've already talked about. I don't go back over it again. You need to learn how to put your foot on the throat of that old Adamic nature and keep him in that death position until he stops breathing. And some of us have some real strongholds in our lives. But you need to see by revelation and then put into practice the reality is that old Adamic nature, that old sinner, he's a sin factory. It's the only thing he can produce. He can't produce anything else but sin. But hallelujah, the salvation of God has provided away by putting us in Christ when he was crucified we were crucified with him and now we need to make it a reality by reckoning that old man to be dead considering him to be dead so brothers and sisters in the same way 
that we, none of us were there when our Lord Jesus was crucified. How do you know he died for your sin? Why? How? Because Romans chapter 3 tells you. But now listen, three chapters later, in the same book, it tells us we died with him. It's the gospel. It's the same message of salvation. And so if we don't enter into that fullness, then we don't experience this matter of overcoming sin. But the only way possible is for us to discover the indwelling Christ as our life. Christ who is my life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What a marvelous salvation, brothers and sisters, to be set free from this. Now, this person also asked about this matter of uh, if my sins are forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus, why will I stand in judgment for sin? Well, my understanding is that in Revelation uh, chapter 20, that the scriptures tell us about a judgment, a great white throne judgment. And at this judgment, God is going to bring every human being before him. And he is have to give an account for the sins he's committed. But I have wonderful news for us this morning. When you and I believed in the Lord Jesus, our appointment for that judgment was canceled. Hallelujah. We don't have to go to that one. But there's still a judgment. But it's the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This not, has not to do with our eternity, with our forgiveness, with our justification. It has to do with what our brother was talking about this morning. We are going to be judged as stewards. How did you do with what you were given? And this is going to determine, as our dear brother just shared with us, our Lord Jesus is going to return and set up his kingdom here on this earth, and he's going to reign for a thousand years. And you know what's in his heart for every one of us? He wants us to join him in this ruling and reigning for a thousand years. But it's conditional. And before you can be placed in a position of responsibility in this millennial kingdom, you have to stand before his judgment seat. See, have you been faithful? Now think about it, my dear brothers and sisters. Think of the responsibility of reigning with him, governing this world with him for a thousand years. Now what kind of people do you think he wants? What kind of a person do we need to be in order to be placed in this kind of a position? We need that to be trustworthy, don't you think? He needs to be able to trust us with the responsibility. Now, I have this silly illustration that I use from time to time, but my brother Homeo from, from the city that we're now living in, and I have been traveled here from Brazil, and we got on an airplane. And this brings back to my memory some other times when you get on an airplane and, and we're waiting on the tarmac and the, the pilot gets on the microphone and says, this is uh, Captain so-and-so. And uh, we are headed someplace, and it's going to take us so many hours. And, and he goes on sometimes and shares some things. And I had this, <laughs> this weird idea that sometimes he would say to us, now, my dear friends, we're glad that you're passengers on this airplane, but I have to be honest with you and tell you that I learned very, very well how to get this airplane off the ground. 
I studied very diligently. I, I listened to my professors. But the day when they taught us how to land it, I wasn't feeling too good. I was tired, and I decided not to go to class. Now, how many of you are going to stay on that plane? He knows how to get it in the air, but he doesn't know how to get it down. Now, brothers and sisters, please, just think about this in terms of the responsibility that's going to be given us to reign with our Lord Jesus, to share in his government of this world for a thousand years. If you haven't learned how to land the plane, then he's not going to give us the responsibility. So I want to be able to share this in a way that's really encouraging to us. I want to underline again, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Brothers and sisters, please, please know that our Heavenly Father has supplied adequately all that we will ever need in order for us to be placed in that position of responsibility when our Lord comes back. Let's put ourselves in a place where we have become good receivers of that grace. Receive grace upon grace. Grace for everything. Know that it's only in our Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. There's no other way that you and I can ever be faithful stewards. I know some of you have, you know, your own natural life. You have been disciplined person, etc., and etc. Sorry, it won't count in this area. We have to learn to know the indwelling Christ. And this is what I understand to be the grace of God. Now, I've got a couple more minutes, and I want to go back to something. I think I created a problem. Surprised? I'm the troubler of Israel. I don't mean to be, but that's the way it works out sometimes. You mentioned that God's work of building us together into a marvelous masterpiece is greater than the work of salvation or creation. Can you expound on that? Please elucidate what you meant by what you said. I want us to turn to three scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2. Just one verse. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Chapter 3 and verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. I want us to pay attention to this manifold wisdom of God. And then in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verses 26 and 27, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Now, I mentioned in my sharing that 
in my estimation, this work that, our, that the Apostle Paul is talking about, that we are a part of in Ephesians chapter 2, this masterpiece of God. What I understand that to be is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see here in Ephesians 5 that the, that the body of Christ becomes the bride of Christ. But my dear brothers and sisters, she has to be very, very special. Before the marriage can be consummated, he has to be able to look at her and only see himself. Now you know that's much bigger than our own personal experience of salvation. It's much bigger than you and I being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's greater than his creation, even though the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. It's a beautiful, beautiful handiwork. But it's not God's masterpiece, as wonderful as it is. And even our own personal salvation is not God's masterpiece, even though it required, oh, unbelievable. You know the only, only way we could have ever experienced the salvation of God is that God took his own precious son and crossed him, crushed him. When our Lord Jesus was there on the cross dying, this was God's lamb. He was doing the sacrifice. And it was his own son. And brothers and sisters, you and I will never ever know what both of them suffered when he said, it is finished, when he remained obedient unto death. You and I will never be able to understand it, but doesn't mean we can't appreciate and experience what is ours because of it. But it seems to me, I am open to being corrected. But here in Ephesians, Paul is talking about God's masterpiece. The word here, workmanship, is the word poema, from which we get the word poem. And is someone who has real gift to do wonderful things, but somehow, at a certain point, he produces this result that is beyond anything he ever imagined. And this is his masterpiece. Well, brothers and sisters, the church, and I, as I understand it, is God's masterpiece. To take us, as we are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, and then building us together, and then us being presented to the Son as his bride. Now, I want you to think with me. Our dear brother this morning shared with us about our inheritance and his inheritance. Think about it with me. You know what God gave us as our inheritance? He gave us the best he had, the absolute best. What is he going to give to his son? The absolute best. She has to be without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. Now, can we even begin to imagine what has to, be, what has to happen for the Lord to take us and so build us together into a unit and for the Lord Jesus to look at her and only see himself. And he can repeat what Adam said when he saw Eve. This 
is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He can look at her and see himself. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know what word we would use to describe that, but I think Paul found the right word. It's a masterpiece of God. And to think that we are the material. He took us in a hopeless state, put the life of his son in us, put us through experiences to produce the character of his son, and then also gave us, as members of the body of Christ, gave us responsibility, gave us gifts, gave us grace, and we are the co-workers. Do you see this? It's more, much, much more than be forgiven of your sin. It's even more than being conformed to the image of his son. It's being built together with others who are in this process. Isn't this wonderful? To me, it's wonderful. To me, this is the eternal purpose of God, that he is taking the most unlikely people on the face of the earth, apprehending them by his love, putting the life of his son in them, sending the Holy Spirit to produce the character of Christ and then building them together. Do you see why body life is so important? Do you see it, my brothers and sisters? It's not optional. And we postpone this wedding by our failure to be the functioning members that we've been called to be. I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us. When you go back, you, you ask the Lord to show you your place of function, and you take the grace to be faithful to do it. And you will be a co-worker with God in, present, in, in um, getting the bride ready. So he can present. Isn't this wonderful? God bless. Jane. Three questions as well. Uh, the first one is, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 where I shared on the being stewards of the manifold grace of God. Uh, this, this question comes out of uh, chapter 4. Uh, we looked at uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 through 13, but we stopped short of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. In view of 4, 7 and the following context, uh, what is the relevance of 4, 17 in these last days for the church? All right, so let's look at those verses that uh, this person is talking about. And in chapter 4, verse 7, I, I mentioned, as we talked the first night uh, about the context of these verses. That is the end times of the last day, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. But then uh, this person mentions that I didn't go on and talk about verse 17, uh, which, of course, is part of the same context. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Peter, as an apostle, with a stewardship and oversight over the church as a whole, realizes that much that is going on in the church is drawing the judgment of God. It's a very sober estimate. But if you realize that Peter not only is the most outgoing of the apostles, or so we imagine, 
he had probably had the best smile of the bunch, and he was a very winsome evangelist, but the Lord had worked a depth into his life where he was very sober and told us all to humble ourselves in the mighty hand of God, that he would exalt us in due season. And as he looks around the church, which has been raised up in the life of Christ, and he sees some of the church losing its light or testimony or faithfulness, he sees the judgment, in fact, has already begun to move in the house of God. And he is talking about that. Now, so there's so many ways of looking at the church. We could say how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And we wouldn't be far off the mark at all. I enjoy getting together with the saints. I, I go to uh, two meetings on Sunday. And I enjoy them. It's refreshing and the, especially when the saints are alive and they love the Lord. It's so wonderful. We could look at the church and talk about that, but you know, there's a much larger context involved. And may I be honest with you and say, the church right now is under the judgment of God. If you look at the church as a whole, and brothers and sisters, we are part of every brother and sister who is born again. We see that the church has fallen into great disrepair. And this disrepair affects not only those who are involved in such churches that don't even have morality as a basis, nor do they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or you just name all of the problems that now assail the church as a whole. You know this, of course, puts a cloud upon their testimony and witness, but it also affects us. We are members of all brothers and sisters in Christ, and we feel the effect of it. Some of our own things that have been handed to us down through tradition are, are part of the darkness of the church's history. Uh, as I mentioned, the fear in everybody's heart when they hear Stewardship Sunday. They think, uh-oh, the pastor's trying to get something out of me. It's mine, it's mine. Not knowing that stewardship should immediately make us think of, yes, everything is the Lord's. Lord, what do you want? No, no, we're saying, wait a minute. 10% is yours, 90% is mine. That doesn't sound like Jacob, I don't know. But you see, that's a part of tradition, or we think of church in terms of meetings and so on and so forth, you see. Now the Lord, in his judgment, is not judging because he's fed up. Quite to the contrary, he's judging us in order to discipline us and perfect us. And when you look, just as an example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is dealing with the Corinthians. We see where Paul mentions there in verse 28, uh, well, 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 let's just take 28 and following. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. This is in the context of breaking bread together. A man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. And when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. The Lord is disciplining us. When we begin to move from the mark, Assuming, of course, that we are on the mark. And this is something where we have to admit 
the Lord is having to reclaim a lot of... Here we come together as the Lord's people. We think because we know the word that we're there. We are God's church. He's happy with us. He is so happy with us because we're the bride of the Lord. But there's so much reclamation that has to be done in the uh, establishment of the church that we need to be very humble and sober about what's going on. Thank God the Lord disciplines us so that we not enter into a judgment of which would imply total di dismissal. That's not the Lord's heart. He's working. I uh, studied the book of Isaiah over the last two years, and one thing I saw, if you'll set your heart to be all the Lord wants you to be, and even in the midst of discipline, which our own assemblies go through, let's not be ignorant of that. But if we will say, Lord, we want your way, there were so many times where, interestingly, in the midst of those judgmental statements being made in Isaiah, there you could almost see the little remnant of those people who were standing for God's purpose. And they would say, oh, Lord, rend the heavens, come down, do your work, because we see that you will make Zion a glory in the earth. So these remnant, they saw the end. So they said, okay, Lord, okay, if you've got to discipline us, go ahead, because we see the end. Brothers and sisters, see the end of all the discipline. When we feel death in our assembly because of independence, because of carnality, because of whatever, hang on to the end product. So there was a Isaiah, and I, I picture him praying with his son, Shir Jashub. A remnant shall return. There he is. And with uh, Mahar Shalal Hajbaz, his other son. And say, son, forgive me for that name. And the three of them praying together, believing that Zion will be a glory in the earth if they hang in there. We are uh, in a church under judgment, but you know what? Part of the reason for that is that so that those who are approved may be revealed. The overcomer. Who really sees the end and hangs on to the Lord's leg and will not let him go till he bless us? There's the remnant waiting there. We see in the book of Revelation, in fact, when Jesus is talking to the seven churches, that some of those churches are already in the midst of a judgment. He warns them of the lampstand's removal or sickness falling upon you. Boy, the Lord. Do we tremble at the mercy of the Lord? I one day began to see a little bit of what Romans 9 through 11 means for me. And it means for me this. God says, oh, no, I'm not letting go of Israel. I'm taking them through the mill. And when I'm through with them, they will be part of all that I'm doing. I never let my children go. How great is both the, what is it? The mercy and severity of the Lord. He means business. And this matter of judgment in the church, he means business. But you know, if you are one of those who want to overcome, you're willing to go upstream in the midst of a downstream church, then I want to give you a wonderful encouragement. It's in the midst of judgment that you discover mercy. You know, we always ask God for his mercy. It's in the midst of judgment you discover how merciful he really is. 
I just picture him holding on to that remnant there in Israel when Isaiah's praying, holding on. He says, oh, I'm caring for you like the apple of my eye. I'm taking people through the rivers and through the waters and through the fires. But don't you worry. You are mine. I'm with you. Stand in there, you see. And Isaiah discovered that going through the waters. And so do we. So it is true. I mean, this is very much a part of the context in a larger matter. Of course, we could go into so much more, but judgment has begun in the house of God. Judgment has begun in our assemblies. Let's not be ignorant of that. You know, the church is not getting higher and higher and better and better, but the Lord's people are becoming more and more glorious as he's disciplining us in the hidden places. So, Remember the end in view, a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. This is what the Lord has in view. Uh, Brother Dana talked about making mistakes and just getting up and going on. Somehow in experience, it's not that simple. Or should it be? I like that. What is the key to continuing on after we stumble and fail uh, to look to or obey the Lord. Now, people have, I, I'm going to list, I'm going to mention three different reactions to when we sin, stumble, disobey. The first one reaction is in the deconstituting stage of our self life. That means we're a Christian, but we're still pretty reliant on ourselves. And one of the reasons it's hard to get back up when we stumble is we're so surprised that we made a mistake. Because we're so self-righteous at heart, every one of us, and so self-confident because mommy and daddy trained you well. Be good. And then even when you got on your own, you got to college and you are being good. And it really throws you when you find out you're nasty bad. You can't, it's like a surprise. How could this happen? I'm almost perfect and ready to be raptured. How could this happen? All I can say is the Lord wasn't surprised at all. And as a matter of fact, we have to go through that deconstituting stage or we'll always be dependent on ourselves. And so we go through, it's terrible. Oh, let me preach the bad news to you. You're going down. And you're going to realize there's nothing good in you that is in your flesh. That's going to be writ large uh, in the bathroom of your house. The second person who has a hard time getting back up when they sin or stumble are those who are very sensitive to sin, even oversensitive to sin. And there are, you know, we have different temperaments. And I must say, as I look around the body of Christ, and you, 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 you take out the uh, sensitometer, there are some people on this extreme with conscience-itis. They always think they're doing wrong, even when they're not. Their conscience is overloaded on how bad I am, how unworthy. Of course, we have people on the other end of the needle. Just hard-hearted. They, they don't even know when they sin. They even think their sin is right. God help us. But now just, uh, you know, there are those people very conscious of sin, and there's only one remedy for the sin-conscious person. You know, there are people who are very sensitive. 
You know, there's people can't even brush their teeth with a regular uh, uh, paste. They got to use Sensodyne. <laughs> and there's people who have consciences that are very, very tender. You know, thank God for that. Now, now the Lord has to strengthen your conscience so you're not always guilty, but... There's only one remedy for the person with a sensitivity like that. You have to stay close to the Lord. You've got to ask the Lord to, you've got to confess your sins. Ask the Lord to forgive you and hang in there with him. The two remedies, of course, we all know by the word in 1 John 1, 9. If any man confesses sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Oh, how we need to apply that to us. Faith is believing on the one millionth application that verse is still good. And if your sin is a little worse than that simple verse and claim can do, then you need to lay hold of the high priest himself at the throne of grace. Grab his leg and say, I won't let you go, Jesus. Please help me. Give me grace and mercy. I feel so bad about this. I feel like I've disqualified myself. Lay hold of him. He's there. And, he, of course, he doesn't want us to wallow in our sin. But even to march on, if through discipline, to march on. The third person is somebody who really loves the Lord, and they, are, they have a hard time getting back up because they're devastated, because they, they did something displeasing to the Lord. Now, God bless you if you're that way. You love the Lord so much, and you fell, and you can't get up because you're so devastated. How could I have done that? How could I have dropped my charge? How could I have been a poor steward? And if that's, uh, is the, if that's your notion, then the Lord is dealing deeply in your life. There is that wonderful scripture that I, to me is consolation there in the Second Corinthians uh, chapter 7. You know, sometimes... A little remorse is good for us. Especially when we, and now I'm not talking about some little sin, you know what I mean? You, you lied to your parents if you're in school, or you really dropped the ball, or you're supposed to witness to somebody and they left or had a terrible tragedy, you know, that's one thing. But when you've really done something wrong, there is regret. If you've wasted years, it's true the Lord can do something about it, but you know, there's always that regret. Paul, don't you know, he always regretted what he did to those Christian brothers and sisters. But though the enemy tried to use that against Paul, he kept coming back to the grace of God and said, I don't know why you chose me, Lord. I'm the worst sinner that there is, but I know you've chosen me. And I take your blood's application and I march forward and Satan's not going to stop me despite of anything I've done. But when, when these things are so displeasing, we have these verses where Paul spoke so strongly to the Corinthians, and there in chapter 7, just verses 9 and 10. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There are many people in the world as well as in the church who are full of remorse and sorrow for the things they've done. That's not at all the point the Lord's getting at. He wants you to repent. 
get past the regret and go on and be faithful to him. So I just mentioned that in light of this uh, wonderful question. Get back up. Well, it is just as easy as that. Don't take yourself so seriously. Take the Lord really seriously and be faithful to him now. And then just this little uh, question here. Is there a way that I can know that I will be ready for God when he comes back? <laughs> Our brother Stephen kind of touched on that already. Well, you know something? The Bible says watch and pray. Unfortunately, that formula probably isn't enough for you to be sure. What does it mean to watch and pray? Well, now people want that listed out. How long should I pray? Exactly how do I watch? Do I go to prophetic conferences? So that, that won't quite answer. How about this? When you see the signs going on around you, look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Oh, oh well, I'm, I'm afraid that there's no sign that will make you confident that Now's the time I got to be ready. You can't know by looking at signs. Uh, how about this? Um, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, especially as you see that it's the last day. Ah, that's how I can know. I just have to keep fellowshipping with the saints. Well, unfortunately, all ten virgins were in the same fellowship. But five of them were ready and five weren't. Well, we can't go by that. Uh... I know how I can be ready. I got to keep working for the Lord. Keep working for the Lord. Uh-oh, and then we have Matthew 7. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord. Well, well did, didn't I prophesy for you? And blah, blah, blah. Oh, you can't know for sure you're ready because you're, you're busy, busy, busy. But you cannot know how to get ready for the Lord, but you can know the Lord. Ah, and then you're ready. Dear brothers and sisters, if you're wrestling with the Lord, if you are following after the Lord, if you are even like Paul and racing after the Lord, trying to grab hold of him, in other words, if that's your heart, you not only gain the Lord, but you gain that same assurance that our brother Ernie mentioned that, Tim, uh, that Paul had when he said, you know, I'm ready for the crown. I've run it. I've done it kept it. I'm ready. How can somebody know that? Because he knows the Lord. He knows the Lord so well. And in the end, it isn't about him. He knows that he's gained the Lord. Dear brothers and sisters, young and old, there's a discovery of the Lord that's just ahead around the bend for you. Keep on following after him. He never, he never, the pursuit of Jesus never gets wearisome. There's always some new dimension to find. Be a pursuer after the Lord and let all his other how-can-I-know stuff take care of itself. And when he comes, you'll be ready because you know him. Well, I see my time's up. <laughs> the minuet has begun, and I'm out of here. our brothers for sharing from those questions of course thank the Lord for speaking through them and uh, 
I think we'd like to ask our brother Hosea to uh, close our time with a prayer for to speak for all of us so we can amen together. So let's join our hearts in, in a, a word of thanks. is not sufficient. I just don't know how to begin to thank you and thank the Lord for this weekend. Amazing love. Amazing grace. Amazing calling. What a God we have. I want to thank on behalf of the conference our three brothers and for their willingness to be with us and to, to be before the Lord to receive that word for his people. We are not hearing man's word. God is speaking to us. So this is a serious time that we can spend together. And I want just to conclude the same word I share Friday afternoon when we had that prayer, 7 o'clock. I think we all can easily identify with Jacobs. We are all Jacobs. We know we are chosen, we are called, but we kick all along the way. We want to do it our own way. But Jacob had one thing in his heart. He was determined to pursue God to the end, no matter what. In spite of his many downfalls, his flesh, he was determined to gain God for himself. And so I just pray that we all have prayed that prayer that Jacob prayed that one evening when he was struggling with that person. He said, I will not let you go. No way. Until you bless me. Until you change me. And we are living in serious time. Time is short. And it's very blessed. blessed we are very blessed to hear timely word to prepare us for these last days. You know, it's just not speaking the words, but a timely word. The word want us to hear for this time so that he can get us through to the end. So may the Lord help us all be diligent and be faithful to the end. He's not asking for our talents, our gifts. He's asking for our heart. That's all he asks for, and he will do the rest. And also, we would like you to pray with us as we seek the Lord's direction for next year. We have to confess every year we struggle very much to come with a theme. It's getting harder and harder. Now we wonder, we want to know how, how high can we go? How, how much more, where can, we, where, where can we go? But the amazing thing is that somehow the Lord came through. He saw him through. And we are so glad that we can all be together. And also Harvey Cedar, this Northeast, Northeast Christian retreat, Monday this time, question and answer is to me is a very unique, unique uh, feature of our conference. Because our three brothers just simply share their heart and, and clarify matters before us. So we're so thankful. But brothers and sisters, praising on. Don't let him go until we are blessed.
not the blessing we ask for, but his kind of blessing will conform us to his beloved son. And our reward that he can look at us and say, you are faithful. That's our reward. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to be giving anything. I want to hear that word, you've been found faithful. That's everything. That faithfulness is another by Christ's life live out. And to God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we cannot thank you enough. We cannot thank you enough. We are indeed blessed. Not because of what we are. It's all because of who you are. We thank you. Your calling of us in Christ Jesus are irrevocable. And you are faithful to the end. And now you are calling us to have complete faith in you. That the work, work, work which you have begun, you will surely finish it. Now raise up many faithful stewards in many local assemblies. Lord, so that your house may be built. Your people will be fed. Your people will be prepared for that day. Lord, we cannot hardly wait. You cannot hardly wait. May we be ready, Lord. And we thank you again for this weekend. For many brothers, those who are for, here for the very first time and who came from distances away, we think we have found one in you. Oh, what a testimony. You have a one people. You have a one work. That is to make us, to conform us to your beloved son. And so we go our separate ways. We pray that we go back with a further increase of Christ. And we are challenged further to press on with you. And in the end, we want to give you all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's blessed mighty name we pray. Okay, the Lord bless you. You don't know how good it is just to see all of you together. I just have two, two final announcements before we dismiss. Uh, as you know on the schedule, the lunch is early. It starts at 11.30 so that you can take your meal before you uh, hit the road. So we'll be meeting there at 11.30 for lunch. We still have lost and found items in the hotel, and I have one cell phone here with a cute picture of a couple kids with sunglasses on, um, if that's familiar to you. I'm holding this lost and found. Tapes or MP3s? Um, important announcement about the recordings. Uh, after this meeting, our brothers are preparing the MP3s that include the whole weekend, including this session, and they'll be ready in about 10, 15 minutes, but they'll also be making copies while we're eating lunch. So in the registration room, uh, there will be copies of, that we're giving away of MP3s of the full message. Uh, and also you'll uh, remember to drop off those keys because they charge us for every lost key. So as you pass through the registration room, drop off your keys. Those will be available. If you do need to leave before, your, uh, before the meal, then they'll have those in about 15 minutes in the back. Jack, did you have another announcement? No? Okay. I dismiss.